This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. It really is a privilege to be able to gather around the birth of Jesus this morning, to celebrate it. But regularly in life, we get moments that offer us choices. Um, it's Aldi, or is it Tesco? Save money, live better, whatever the catchphrase is, every little bit helps. Uh, you know, Sainsbury's little, we kind of make these decisions daily. Maybe it's more about the, the sports team you support. Um, you know, from, from where I've come from, back in South Africa, uh, even, even there, people have never set foot on this island, support Man City, Man United, Liverpool. Uh, but as for me, I, I struggle with a ball that bounces predictably. I need an oval-shaped ball. I've given myself to Gloucester rugby, but in reality, uh, these are, are minor decisions, aren't they? Minor choices. Uh, in the grand scheme of things. I think less frequently, but more critically, there come bigger moments of decisions that we need to take. Is it, um, it's things like, uh, you know, these, these big personal communal moments that shape our destiny, shape directions, maybe for us personally, even for us as a nation. Um, countries to move to, maybe the person to marry, uh, or that critical vote that must be taken. And I think to any new idea or decision that must be made, there seems to be three main ways that we respond to these decisions, three main courses of action. We either support it, or we ignore it, or we oppose it. So obviously the major decision that recently in the last couple of years has been taken that hopefully most of you had your say in was the decision for the UK either to remain or to leave the European Union. Uh, and as a nation, we took the information available to us, we uh, voted with conscience, and many people turned up to cast their vote and, and made a decision that potentially can have uh, multi-generational impact. So it's a big decision. We see 17 and a half million people decided to vote for and support of leaving the EU. Uh, about 16 million chose to vote against leaving the EU, so we got those two polls. And one thing that we hardly ever talk about are the 13 million registered voters who chose to do nothing, to not vote, to ignore it. So even in something as huge as the Brexit vote, there we see these polls, people supporting, people opposing, and this big chunk in the middle that ignored it. So, as we walk around the sort of streets of Cheltenham or Cleve or Gloucester or Worcester uh, at this time of year, we can easily get lost in the lights and the singing and the sort of Christmas jumpers uh, that are everywhere and the joy and it's, it's a lovely time. Um, and 
it, it, it seems that sort of there's this joy all around us, but it's also a time for us to unwind. We, we take a moment, we, many of us take leave, and we take a pause, hopefully from any decision making. We try to ignore everything that sort of comes our way. But at the same time, Christmas does offer us a wonderful opportunity to re-evaluate, to look at our lives and assess what really matters. The Bible would argue that although Brexit is a very important decision and its implications really important, although who we are going to marry is really important, although which nation you choose to live in is really important, these are decisions that pale in significance compared to the big one that our story and the Bible offers us the fact that do, will we choose to daily seek and worship at the feet of Jesus? Can you afford to ignore or oppose that great story? It sounds very dramatic. Well, I, I think it's drama worthy. I, I am quite dramatic. Um, but this is one of those moments that is genuinely critical. For 2,000 years, people have been trying unsuccessfully to oppose the claim that Jesus was born, He lived, He died on a Roman cross, and that He actually rose from the grave three days afterwards, was seen by upward of 500 people before He then ascends back into heaven. The fact that this Jesus, whom we are celebrating as being born now at Christmas, would die and in exact detail, things would happen according to the way that he prophesied it. Not just that scripture from hundreds of years before prophesied it to happen. And then it did, I think is a bulletproof argument that life goes beyond the grave and into eternity. And if cars and houses and countries and Brexits and even marriage, in my opinion... Uh, will stay behind on earth in its current form when we die, then surely you will agree that the most important decisions are the one re regarding eternity. As author C.S. Lewis wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. I wonder where you sit on that scale this morning. Where, what is Jesus to you? What is the story to you? Where have you fallen on the scale of opposition, ignorance, or support? Well, let's read together part of the Nativity story and see what big decisions it highlights and whether indeed wise men and women still should seek Jesus. We're reading out of Matthew 2, verse 1 to 18. Again, the words will always be behind me, but if you have your own Bible, uh, it's lovely to haul it out, scribble, make notes, highlight. Um, I always say this, it's like a sword that gets comfortable in your hand. You've got to learn how to use it, and your own Bible when you bring it uh, on a Sunday is a real privilege, so let's do that. Verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea during the time of King Herod, 
Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Dun, dun, dun. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them again and until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Oh, let's just pray. It's just wonderful. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for truth written down for our benefit, for the benefit of the generations, for the benefit of millennia. God, these words to us are as precious as the day they were penned. And we ask that by your Spirit, you allow them to land in our hearts. Would they move from mind down into the very depths of our soul and become truth to us on which we build our lives and live worshipful lives before you. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to steal a phrase from John Piper just to kick off with. And the first point I'd like to make on this is a non-point. Okay. Uh, I call it a non-point because if you're anything like me, who runs on rabbit trails all over the place and gets really distracted, then you will probably feel the urge to ask questions like, uh, what is it the Magi saw that made them move? What was this light in the sky? Uh, how did they know to go to Jerusalem? Uh, how did they get from Jerusalem to the house of uh, in Nazareth? Um, how, did, how did all these things work? Well, they all sound like very important questions, <laughs> but are really unanswerable in many ways. Um, and they are non-points that, if we get stuck on, uh, can possibly permanently distract us from the big point these scriptures are trying to make. But to help those of you who are like me, 
Uh, I'm going to give a quick 30-second stab at some of those points. So here we go. Due to the dispersion of the Jews during the time of the exile, a couple of hundred years earlier, so the Jews were all over the place, uh, this pervasive, this, uh, this common idea grew amongst the Eastern and the Middle Eastern na- nations and cultures. There was this regional expectation that the king of the Jews would be born and soon, this great king. So not like any other king before, a great king would be born, the Jewish Messiah, the one who would come and save. So stars and astrology were the scientific means by which the kind of wise people, the scientists of the day, assessed the big occurrences of the day. And um, when this star, which I think is a supernatural event, uh, God ordained, I don't think it was just some random flickering of planets aligning. This is an ordained move of the sovereign God. Uh, When they saw this star, these Eastern scholars saw it as the sign that the Jewish Messiah had been born. And what they then logically do is go to Jerusalem, the capital of the Jews, uh, and they then ask the questions, assuming that their own scholars would have been looking out for the signs of the Messiah. So they come to Jerusalem, they ask where he is. Um, they thought at least they would know where he is if he's not in Jerusalem yet as king. Um, and then they get the answer. Well, the Bible predicts from hundreds of years earlier that Jesus would be born in Nazareth, which is a five-mile journey from Jerusalem. So they set sail And again, a supernatural event occurs uh, where a light leads them. Again, I think a sovereign move of God. This is not a comet. This is not something weird. This is something that led them straight from Jerusalem to the house where Joseph, Mary, and the now two-year-odd-ish, give or take, Jesus is living. Okay, It's not the moment where there are shepherds and he's lying in a manger. This is significantly later down in the timeline. All right, so I urge you to settle this non-point as interesting without letting it divert you from uh, the big critical points the Bible is trying to make about this. So let's move forward to investigate further why wise men and women would still seek Jesus. So on to our first of three proper points. Um, And based on the three Um, reactions that all of us make when it comes to big decisions or big news. Did you spot those three main reactions, I wonder, uh, in our story? So what are they? There's those who follow and support. There are those who ignore and are indifferent. And then there are those in active opposition. So who are those three people? Who are those who, who are supporting and following? Who are they? It's the wise men, right? The Magi, great. Who are those that are indifferent and ignore what's going on? Did you spot that one? The uh, religious leaders, right? So we're going to be looking at the religious leaders. And then who are those? Who's the one in active opposition? King Herod. Okay, cool. So those are three points. Herod was a bad dude. Um, The moment he finds out where the true king is, he sends soldiers to go and kill all the babies 
two years old and under, all the baby boys in Nazareth and surrounding areas. He's a bad dude. He's a good puppet ruler for the Romans, but a bad, murderous guy who actually gets worse. He gets more um, tyrannical, anxious, nervous about his own rule uh, as time goes on towards his end. Herod was so hated that he knew when he dies, there would be celebrations in the street. Shocking. At the same time as him sending troops to go and kill these babies, uh, and, and to best guess, it's not like hundreds. We're talking a dozen at max in a little village like, like Nazareth. So it's not like major, major newsworthy event. In fact, uh, Bethlehem. Um, Nazareth. Bethlehem. It, it's, in fact, people probably wouldn't have even heard of this kind of thing. In, a, in an age where there's such high infant mortality, the death of a dozen baby boys would have barely been a blip on the sort of social network. But um, so at the same time as he's murdering these boys in Bethlehem, he'd rounded up all the key leaders in Jerusalem. He'd imprisoned them in the Hippodrome, ready for the day he was to die. So that when he dies, he'd ordered all of them to be slaughtered so that in Jerusalem there would be genuine wailing and mourning for their leaders. So at least people would be crying at the same time as his death, if not for him, for others. Just a terrible, terrible guy. So in our culture, people aren't actively going out killing babies in a in an attempt to silence truth. Certainly in other parts of the world, yes, but not here in tolerant England. Um, in the UK, we, in the name of tolerance, are uh, silencing academics, teachers, nurses, to name just a couple of actual examples uh, with people behind them, uh, marginalizing them, firing them because of their Christian faith. And for the answers that they give when they're asked questions about real life and their, their views and the Bible's views on things. And why is that? Why do, why do we do that in the name of tolerance? Well, I think people are scared. I think people are afraid. The highest value in our Western culture seems to be the freedom to choose. Freedom of choice, power to choose. And people are scared of losing that power. People are scared of losing control over their lives. If there is another great king outside of me, then I can't be king. And I can't do what I want to do when I want to do it. People hate that. That's a, that's a scary place. Uh, author of Anansi Boys, Neil Gaiman, he wrote, human beings do not like being pushed about by gods. They may seem to on the surface, but somewhere on the inside, underneath it all, they sense it and they resent it. Mm. We resent the fact that there's somebody to tell us how to live our lives. I think the fact that there is so much angst and anxiety and paranoia in our culture when in a time where uh, culturally 
the way that things are working, everything should be really hunky-dory and people should be really happy and have no anxiety because everything is permissible. I think this is a sure sign that we should be considering other alternatives. And it does seem that the humble King of Kings and what he offers are, irrelevant, are, sorry, are as relevant and as powerful as the day Jesus was born. And the Bible would encourage wise men and women to still seek Jesus. The second reaction type we see in life and, and in our passage is that of being unaware or indifferent to Jesus. Uh, we saw that in our religious leaders, our, our teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the guys who, who Jesus always went after as those who try to work for their own salvation by their good deeds. The very ones who, who should have been looking out for, this is interesting, I think the very ones who out of anybody on earth should have been looking out for the coming of the Messiah, the great King, the Savior, they've got their noses stuck in books and stuck in looking good. It took Magi, wise men from a foreign land to come and travel who knows how long to get to Jerusalem to point out that their own Messiah had been born. And what did they do when they questioned about where the Messiah would be born? I think it started really well. They went to the Scriptures as they should, Okay, they missed it up front, but they did what they needed to do. Next step, they go to the Scriptures and came up with details about the, the birth of the Messiah, a where. So we go to Micah 2, which is uh, quoted in Matthew 2, and he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient of times. Great, brilliant. They've read the scriptures. Surely they're just going to jump into action. They're going to follow the wise men all the way to Bethlehem, fall down and worship them. After all, they are Jewish leaders. Nope. Nope, none of that. Like some of us, they continue on in their lives, hoping that their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds. And somehow, if there is a God who sees things, these deeds will please Him, and at least they're impressing man along the way. Possibly like some of us, desperately hoping to find salvation and redemption through our own tiring efforts. So Matthew, the writer of this gospel book, he almost pleads with this group. They've heard. They know the truth. He pleads with them to then act accordingly and follow the wise men to the real king. And I think similarly, he pleads with us also. There are those here this morning who've read, who've heard, who know truth but remain unaware personally of Jesus and skeptical of Him. 
You might consider yourself open to faith, but not yet a follower of Jesus. I think allow this passage and the writer to urge us to mix knowledge with faith in our hearts this morning. Move from passive knowledge about Jesus to active following of Jesus. So if you are cautious and anxious to join the caravan of wise men going from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, know this. The thief, I put in brackets here, the promises of this life to bring satisfaction, all the things that we long for that we realize, oh, it just doesn't satisfy. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. You might have felt that. You might have felt that. The things you've been pursuing just does not bring the joy you thought, even when you achieve it. And then Jesus says, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. I think following Jesus is laying your life down. But it is also picking up a much fuller and more satisfying life on the other side. The affections and longings of our heart that can bring us some joy, temporary, can also cause us so much pain. These things are changed as we encounter Jesus, these longings, these desires, these impulses. And He becomes our great, all-satisfying desire. The other really sad part of this otherwise happy story is that these people that we read about were hardened veterans of the religious life. They were churchgoers. Uh, they were regular givers. They were in community groups. Some of them were in threes. They were living the spiritual rituals, but they were practically indifferent towards Jesus himself. God first. Follower of Jesus. Are you doing what you do out of the desire for Jesus? Or have you found yourself slipping into duty? Christian, are you in the same place now than you were a year ago? In your maturity and building of spiritual muscle? Are you less tight with your finances, your time, your abilities now than a year ago? Have you got more stories to tell of God's faithfulness as you've trusted Him this last year? Have you risked more for His glory and in obedience of Him this last year than ever before? Do you love the things that Jesus loves more than last year this time? Has your love grown for His bride, the church, what about his passions, the, the poor, the widows, the orphan? Does your heart break more for the lost? Is Jesus more all-satisfying and enjoyable to you than ever before? Do you have a greater knowledge of his love for you and your eternal security in that love? Does the death which Jesus died for your sins still bring you to tears in thankfulness? 
Oh, friends, our writer Matthew, he spurs us on to daily and continually put to death dead works and religious rituals and instead to follow the wise men and women on their way to seek and worship at the feet of Jesus. So, as those who've now moved from opposition to mildly ignorant about Jesus, we now leave it behind and we continue with a caravan of wise men and women to Bethlehem. And if it would have taken the Magi anything up to two years to reach Bethlehem from where they'd left home and from the time they'd first seen the star in the skies. I think much would have happened in those two years. Many a road traveled, many a story to tell, many an uncomfortable night, possibly some really fun times as well. Let us seek and follow the King with the same perseverance and patience that we see modeled with them. The road with Jesus in 2018 might have been a really rough one for you. The road with Jesus in 2019 will have its ups and its downs too. But we're promised that for those who seek and worship the Lord Jesus, He promises to be with us every step of the way and to satisfy every desire of our heart, which is inclined towards Him, and to satisfy every need of the body in this life and into all eternity. Wise men and women throw themselves daily, patiently, and with perseverance at the feet of God, who so loved the world that He gave His only Son. When we're at the feet of Jesus, we see the Father. We see God Himself, the Father who sent Him. So that those who believe in Him would not be eternally separated, but have eternal life in Christ. As Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Isn't that a great promise? So, at the end of a long journey, with great perseverance, the Magi enter the room the house of Jesus, and seeing Him, they fell to the ground, acknowledging Him as King and Messiah, they worshipped Him. And before the Magi could even do anything, I think they received from this infant Jesus the gifts of faith and peace and joy unending, such that it seems they couldn't contain it. They just burst into spontaneous worship before Him. I think even at that point, it would have been clear to the wise men that uh, what Jesus speaks some years later, where He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. When you acknowledge your car mechanic, (laughs) you receive from them the services that they give. They fix the car, and you then appropriately appreciate them for their work. When wise men and women acknowledge Jesus as 
king and as Messiah, the saving one. It means receiving from him the incredible gifts of life and forgiveness and peace and joy that are found only in him. The wonderful thing is, is that it's his greatest desire that we would know these things, that we would receive these gifts, and that we would know him more nearly and love him more dearly because of it. To worship him means to receive these gifts freely and to respond with appropriate adoration and thankfulness. And although our Magi in the story head off back to their lands, wise men and women today, you and I, we have the precious opportunity to acknowledge and receive these gifts daily from Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit that is with us everywhere we go at every moment, even now. But this generous God who gives so much and has given and continues to give so regularly, why did he receive these sacrificial gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh from our wise men and women? Was it because he needed it? Was it because Joseph needed the money? Maybe Jesus needed some nappies? Well, God is the creator and the owner of the universe and all things in it. Gifts to him are neither a royal care package to cover some lack that we perceive he might have, nor are they somehow to try and twist his royal arm to get him to do what the wise men wanted him to do. Sacrificial gifts, friends, giving that you really feel intensifies the desire for Christ himself. In much the same way as fasting, which we've spoken about uh, increasingly over the last months. We love it. We do it together as a leadership team. We do it together as couples. Uh, one day a week. It's wonderful. Much like fasting, the giving of sacrificial gifts is a way of saying that the satisfaction and the joy I seek will not be satisfied with the things I am offering you now. You are more precious, more valuable, more desired, and more worthy of worship than anything I could ever give to you. This stuff, gold, frankincense, myrrh, food, coffee, chocolate, the stuff that we give to God sacrificially, our finance, this stuff will never satisfy me. Only you will do. I think that's what it means to bring gifts before Jesus, the King of Kings. The religious leaders in our passage quoted out of the prophecies of Micah to discover where the great King, the Messiah, would be born. If only they'd read a couple of verses further down in Micah, uh, they would have discovered not only where he would be born and discover a fact about him, but they would have learned who he would be and what he would do. Maybe, maybe then even they would have jumped up and followed the wise men and women to go and worship and offer their devotion 
in Bethlehem. So let's read that passage again, this time from verse 2 all the way down to 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. Wow. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. That this one who would be born would bring brothers and sisters and family members from all over the world. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely from then, uh, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Friends, wise men and women seek the king who will care for them like a shepherd cares for his sheep with strength and majesty and power. Wise men and women seek out the true eternal security and greatness of the king whose realm is not merely of one nation or of many nations, but over all of creation. Wise men and women seek the king who will not only bring peace, which could be so fleeting, but he would be our peace. Wise men and women, as we begin our response this morning, We're going to break bread. And our temptation is to want to jump up and do stuff and jump into action and uh, say something or offer something, give something to the king. But as Jesus started life, humbly and generously giving, even as an infant, so too his death in our place on a Roman cross was a sacrificial gift of love and forgiveness that brings peace to all men, that offers peace to all men. The first response to him now, this morning, is the same as that that the Magi experienced when they first saw Jesus receiving from him. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.